Well, we continue on in our sermon series through the book of Hebrews, focusing on Hebrews 12, 4 through 13 this morning. My sermon is entitled, Suffering as Sons. Now, the, the idea of sonship in the Bible is, is a rich theme. There's varied aspects throughout Scripture in regards to sonship. The expression son of God can refer to many different things in God's word. In the book of Job, the angels are called sons of God. And in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22 and 23, son refers to all of Israel. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. The term son of God can refer to a specific Israelite. And the king of Israel was the son of God par excellence of whom God said, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now, supremely, Jesus is the Son of God, and I'm sure you're aware of that. But I wonder if you're aware this morning of the fact that all believers are sons of God. That is, both men and women are sons. And both men and women are referred to as sons so that they might understand that the privileges of sonship belong to all believers. The Apostle Paul makes this clear in his letter to the Romans, where he declares that all believers have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Paul writes even more succinctly and explicitly in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, where he writes, In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For male and female Christians to be referred to as sons of God is purposeful. The writers of Scripture do that with intent. They could say it otherwise, and sometimes they do. For example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, Paul makes reference to the people of God as sons and daughters of the Lord Almighty. But sometimes believers, both male and female, are referred to simply as sons. So what is it for all believers, both men and women, to be sons of God? Well, in ancient cultures, only sons were legal direct heirs of a family. And when an author refers to both men and women believers as sons, he's reminding all believers of their status, their status as those who receive the inheritance. Women and men as followers of Christ are equally privileged and equally valued as co-heirs of a full inheritance in Christ. Now, as the author of Hebrews continues to encourage God's people to endure, he does so leveraging their positions, their position as sons of God, speaking to both men and women believers in a way that's intended to stimulate and strengthen them so that they can endure in suffering. Let's keep that biblical view of sonship in mind as I read the passage again this morning. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4 through 13. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. 
And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. The main idea from this passage is that endurance, and enduring specifically in hardships and suffering, is encouraged by and accomplished through a biblical perspective of suffering. Now, as we locate ourselves in the text, remember that in chapter 10, verses 19 through 25, we were admonished to hold on to our faith, to endure. And then in chapter 10, verse 26 through 31, we were warned not to fall away. We must endure. And in 10, 32 through 39, we are exhorted to remain confident and to endure until the end so that we might receive final salvation. The heroes of faith in chapter 11 illustrate persevering faith, endurance, and faith that leads to final salvation because they believed in God's promises, believing in the midst of their own suffering that what he had promised would come to pass. In 12 verses 1 and 3, Jesus is, is presented as the supreme exemplar of faith, and we are reminded that the race must be run with endurance until the end. So with this idea of enduring faithfully in our minds, let's focus in on enduring through suffering. And that's where we start this morning. Point number one, their suffering, verses four through eight. The author endeavors to encourage the readers by describing to them a biblical perspective of their suffering. The author conveys this biblical view of suffering first with a gentle rebuke, and then with Scripture's testimony, and then with God's perspective of them, and finally with a description of endurance. Let's begin with a gentle rebuke. The author wrote, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Now, commentators agree that in line with what the author of Hebrews is arguing in this section of the book, this struggle against sin points to this struggle to endure in the midst of suffering. The struggle against sin is an internal struggle, and certainly apostasy is in view, the sin of apostasy, and yet all sin that they might commit is in view. But the struggle against sin is also external, in that they have been sinned against by those who 
persecuted them and caused their suffering. And so the suffering in view here is a result of sin. It's a struggle with sin, the sin of themselves, the sin of others, and the reality of living in a sinful, fallen world. Now, the author has already acknowledged that these people have suffered a great deal, Hebrews 10, 32 through 34. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. However, they are reminded now that they have not suffered as much as some of God's faithful. Some of them we read about in chapter 11. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They haven't suffered like that, not yet. Nor have they suffered like Jesus, who entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Now, their suffering is significant, but there are worse cases. The question is, will they endure lesser suffering? Now, the author obviously raises this idea to encourage them to endure. And that's part of the point of chapter 11. These people could do it, so can you. Some of them have done it through worse conditions. And so you can do it through this one. The author then draws their attention to Scripture's testimony in regards to suffering. Specifically, he quotes Proverbs chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. The community must remember that God regards them as children, as those who are sons, as those who are entitled to all the benefits and all the privileges of sonship. That's the testimony of Scripture. And further, the testimony of Scripture is that suffering for the child of God is fatherly discipline. Divine discipline and sonship go hand in hand. There's a close connection between being God's sons and suffering. Now, as we consider this encouragement to endure through the testimony of Scripture, can we just pause for a minute? Can we consider this connection between suffering and sonship generally? Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. A lot of months ago, we considered that. It says, for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. As we consider our own status as sons of God, and as we consider our own suffering, let's not forget that it was the suffering of the Son of God that saved us. It was the suffering of the Son of God which gave us access to God. And it was the suffering of the Son of God which brought many of us to glory as sons. 
You see, our suffering is not salvific, but his suffering was. Jesus and his substitutionary death absorbed the punishment for sin that we deserved. He suffered for our sins. And we are brought to glory as sons of God when we acknowledge that our sins were the cause of his suffering. When we believe in him and believe in his death and resurrection, and when we entrust ourselves to him and his suffering on our behalf. You may be here this morning or listening online and you are not a believer. And you may be very interested this morning in what the Bible says about suffering and hardship. It's a very common question of unbelievers. What is the deal with suffering? And it seems that one of the ways that God reaches us in our unbelief is through suffering. Famous author C.S. Lewis wrote that God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Perhaps your suffering or the suffering of someone you love has got your attention, and you want to know what God says about suffering. Well, understand this this morning. The most important thing that God says about suffering in all of his revelation is that the suffering of his son, Jesus Christ, is the only means of salvation. It is only in the name of Jesus we are saved, and it's only by the blood of Jesus that we are saved. Could I suggest to you this morning that even before you deal with your own suffering or the suffering of someone you love and what the Bible says about that, that first you deal with the suffering of Jesus, the Son of God. We're going to talk more this morning about suffering and the sons of God, the suffering and believers, but I encourage you Become a child of God by putting your faith in God's Son, Jesus Christ, and availing yourself of his salvation that he won in his suffering. Now, returning to Scripture's testimony, we see from the author's quoting of Proverbs that God sees believers as sons and daughters entitled to the blessing of sonship. That is Scripture's testimony of those who suffer. Well, what about God's perspective? What's God's perspective of them and their suffering? Well, God's perspective on the suffering of his children becomes a full frontal assault against our predisposition to see suffering as God's punitive actions against us. Don't we often see our suffering as us being punished? That's how we're inclined to believe when we suffer. For the sons of God, for those who have come to God through Jesus, suffering is not a punishment. It is discipline. The hardships, the trials, and the suffering of the recipients of the letter to the Hebrews are in actuality, according to the author, and thus according to God, are discipline. They're the loving discipline of the heavenly Father for all those that he has received as sons. And 
these hardships, these trials, this suffering, it's evidence of God's fatherly care of them. That's God's perspective. Now, this this is not a truth that is easy for us to reconcile. And this is especially difficult to see when we're in the midst of suffering. Can I admonish all of God's children in the sound of my voice? Could I admonish all of you who are not currently suffering, who are not currently suffering, at least in significant ways, to settle this question now? You need to address this question and you need to answer it, and it needs to be settled. And it needs to be settled before the onslaught of oppression, before the assault of affliction. Because in the heat of battle, in the, in the midst of the flames, in the center of the turmoil, this truth is much harder to accept and it's much harder to lean into it. We need to settle it now. If I am a child of God, if I am a son of God, my suffering is God's loving, fatherly discipline, and it gives me evidence of my acceptance in the beloved. But Pastor Jude, it doesn't feel like love. Well, it is, and you need to settle it now. Pastor Jude, it doesn't feel like the actions of a good, good father. Well, it is, according to Scripture, so settle this question now. Pastor Jude, it it seems more like rejection. It can't be acceptance, can it? Yes, it can, and it is. Settle this now. Brothers and sisters, when the diagnosis of cancer comes, when the brutal advance of dementia sets in, when the realization of your spouse's infidelity comes to light, when the calls from the creditors become frequent, in that moment, getting the biblical godly perspective is going to be much, much harder. So let's settle this in our hearts now. My suffering as a follower of Christ is God's loving, fatherly discipline. And it points to my acceptance with him. Now, if you are in the midst of suffering and you haven't settled this in your heart, you have a more difficult task ahead of you. But all is not lost. You aren't working through this alone. You have the Holy Spirit within you to help you to understand and to believe and to apply God's word to your soul, even in the midst of whatever chaos life has thrown at you. You can, in the midst of your suffering, acknowledge that you need God's help to understand this. You should pray that he would help you to understand and receive this truth. And then trust him. Trust him that this is a promise from him to you, despite the difficulty, despite the suffering. Trust this as to be God's fatherly discipline. And trust whatever it is you're going through to be evidence of his love and acceptance of you. The last perspective of suffering the author wishes to convey 
in order to help the reader endure pertains to a further understanding of endurance. What is endurance? Well, endurance is how the sons of God, both men and women, respond to suffering. Endurance is how God's sons navigate God's discipline. We read it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Endurance is how sons of God respond to suffering. And they respond that way because it is his fatherly discipline in their lives. To not respond with endurance would to be to deny your sonship. It would be to identify yourself as an illegitimate child. Those who have no status, who receive no privileges and no benefits of sonship, they do not endure. This is God's perspective of a believer's suffering. Now, as the author puts forward a biblical view of suffering, part of that picture pertains to God. Point one was a biblical view of a believer's suffering. Point two is a biblical view of God in the midst of suffering. Point number two, their God, verse nine. The author now endeavors to encourage the readers to endure by insisting they have a biblical perspective of their God. Number nine, but, or, sorry, verse nine, besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject of the father of spirits and live? Now in our day and, and in our age, I think this statement might generate much more frustration and confusion than ever. You see, those who perceive their fathers as good and godly, those who respected them, and respect how their fathers raised them, they can work out this analogy fairly easily. They look to that father who disciplined them in a godly way, and they give him in their minds and in their hearts a certain amount of respect and a certain amount of honor. And they understand that the sovereign God of the universe is perfect in holiness. And they understand that he has been discipling them in a loving, fatherly way. And so they can see their own earthly fathers whom they respected and honored. And then they can look to the Father of spirits, the Almighty Lord of all, and understand that he is worthy of so much more respect and honor. And that's the biblical perspective of God that the author of Hebrews is giving us, that we must respect him and honor him. For them, this might not be difficult, but this analogy is much more difficult for those of you who do not and did not respect your fathers. And perhaps your father abandoned you or abused you or neglected you. If that's the case, then respect might be the last impression you would have towards your father. And so how do you gain this perspective that the author is encouraging? How do you gain this perspective that will help you endure? I hope you want to have it, but how can you get there? Well, for those of you who had or have a difficult relationship with your father, 
if he wasn't a good and godly father, you can still get there by recognizing that God is not like your father by contrast. God the Father is perfect in every way. And so you can leverage this analogy in Hebrews by speaking to yourself this way. Even though I did not respect and find it hard to respect my father because of his sinful ways against me, I know God the Father is not like that. He is perfect in every way. Though I may not respect or though I struggle to respect my own father, I can and should respect God because even in my difficulties, I can see that he is loving me and affirming my sonship in Christ. You can speak to yourself that way. You can learn from this analogy as well. A proper perspective of God as one infinitely worthy of our respect is necessary for a proper perspective of suffering, which we need in order to endure. And so with a biblical perspective of suffering and a biblical perspective of God, believers can move to a biblical perspective of the outcome of their discipline. That's point number three, verses 10 and 11, their discipline. The author now endeavors to help the readers to endure by insisting that they adopt a biblical perspective of the outcome of God's discipline in their life. We read in 10 and 11, for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Here is what we need to understand about God's discipline, which we often experience as suffering and hardship. One, it is for our good. Two, through it we share in God's holiness. And three, it yields peaceful fruit of righteousness. One of the ways we talk about the good associated with suffering comes from the well-known and often quoted verses from Romans where Paul speaks about suffering, saying, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And a little further on in that chapter, as many of you know, Paul says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And to that comforting verse, I say amen and amen. But the author of Hebrews takes this a little further. He isn't just suggesting that God will work in suffering for good. He is saying our suffering is for our good. That's a little bit farther, isn't it? These hardships, the, this suffering is working together for good and they are for my good. Now that's a crucial belief. My suffering is working together for good. My suffering is for my good. Even saying that and considering the reality of it is a bit difficult. It's one thing to say, God is working my cancer for good. 
It's another to say, my cancer is for my good. It's a bit more specific. It's a little bit raw, and it leaves a little less wiggle room. My unemployment is working for good. My unemployment is working for my good. Can you feel the difference? There's a different weight to those two declarations, and it's not easy. And yet, this is the godly biblical perspective. And we need to conform ourselves to this truth. Before I move on, let, let me be clear about what I'm not saying. I am not saying, and I do not believe the Bible says, that the thing that causes the suffering is good. Cancer isn't good. Death isn't good. Dementia isn't good. Depression isn't good. I haven't said that. The Bible doesn't say that. But God works our suffering for good, and he works it for my good. And yet the thing that causes it isn't necessarily good. I've got to speed up here. The next facet of a biblical perspective of the outcome of God's discipline is that we share in his holiness. Sharing in God's holiness through his good discipline is an already not yet concept. Already in each moment of our lives, the discipline of the Lord is meant to transform us now as we are sanctified in our daily walk with the Lord. And through our growth in godliness, through our being conformed to the image of Christ, through our beholding the glory of the Lord and being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, we are sharing in his holiness. However, there is a future not yet experience, an aspect to this holiness. We see both of these in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, uh, to you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit. All right, so that's the daily experience of His holiness and belief in truth. To this, He has called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our daily sanctification now leads to the obtaining of the full glory of the Lord Jesus Christ that his return. And don't miss in there, we don't have time for it today, but don't miss that it is by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit works this in our lives. Our hardships and suffering is our Heavenly Father's good discipline. And that's the means that the Holy Spirit uses that we might share in God's holiness, now in part and completely when the Lord returns. Praise God that we have this helper, the Holy Spirit, to help us in regards to that. Now, the final outcome is a harvest that this discipline results in. The author finishes off these thoughts on a proper perspective of suffering, which is God's discipline, with two metaphors, and one of them is agricultural. If we focus on this agricultural language, we see that the discipline of the Lord, whereby we share in God's holiness, will produce a harvest of righteousness. Now, I remember visiting my dad in Montana one year when I was much long, younger. And I remember being with my brother in the truck, and we were 
driving out in the country. We were driving along a cornfield. It was the end of the summer. The corn stalks were very high. You could see the ears of corn on the stalks quite easily. Up ahead, there looked like what was an abandoned bicycle lying on the side of the road. And as we got close to the bicycle, we noticed one of the most redneck guys we had ever seen. His hair was crazy. His beard was crazy. He had no shirt on. He had denim overalls, and he had a trucker hat. And he was coming out of the cornfield. And as he came out, we saw that the bib portion of his overalls was crammed full of corn. He was stealing corn. And as he came out of the field, he looked at us with this big grin on his face, and he said, this is the best corn in the whole state of Montana. Well, I guess that apparently means you can help yourself to it. Now, when I saw this phrase, harvest of righteousness, it made me think of that redneck's harvest of corn and how similar our harvest of righteousness is to that. We share in the righteousness of Christ, and we share it in our justification, which means that God, when we come to faith in him, declares us righteous with the righteousness of Christ. And we've also noticed that we are becoming more righteous through the indwelling and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And just like that redneck corn stealer, we don't deserve the harvest of righteousness on either count. You see, if you think about that redneck, the corn seed wasn't bought by him, nor was it planted by him. The weeds weren't sprayed by him, nor was the field irrigated by him. The insects weren't thwarted by him. It was all the farmer's doing. And he walks into the cornfield to get the best corn in Montana, and he fills his bib with it. Well, brothers and sisters, our harvest of righteousness is all of grace. We may work in our progressive sanctification, but the Spirit does the heavy lifting. And the crop of righteousness which we endure, this harvest of righteousness, was bought and paid for by Christ through his severing. Christ's work made it available to us. And it is the best righteousness, the only righteousness in the world. And praise God, we get to fill our bibs with it. Our suffering and our hardships are the loving discipline of a heavenly father. And his discipline is for our good. And through it, we share in God's holiness and it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And that is something to rejoice in even in the midst of suffering. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you this morning for the work of Christ. And we thank you, Father God, that in the midst of our suffering, your word indicates that we suffer as sons. And therefore, our suffering is your discipline. Help us to understand that. Help us to see your Discipline, sorry, our, our suffering is your discipline and evidence of your love towards us. And help us to have a biblical perspective of our suffering and 
and what the outcome is. That by it we partake in your holiness. By it we receive this harvest of righteousness. And we didn't earn it. But we get it because of Christ. I pray you would help us in this. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.